It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. In August of 1944, British General Harold Alexander is given a very difficult task. He is asked to fight a battle that he likely won't win, because the purpose of the battle is, ironically, not to win. Hey, this is Eric. Before I dive into this message and explore the all-important operation of humility in our spiritual lives, I wanted to mention that the previous 74 episodes in this World War II series are available at ericludy.com forward slash daily. I would highly recommend that you walk through this entire audio series. The parallels between World War II and our present day are startling. Now let's join General Alexander as he builds an offensive against the Germans that he realizes ahead of time he likely won't win in Italy. But if fought well, will lead to a victory elsewhere in France. We live in historic times. I think we all sense that. Uh, of course, every time period in history, you could say we live in a historic time, because it is, it's true, it's history, it's unfolding. Right now, uh, I've been liking it sort of like to a World War I, like a 1914 or a 1939. We are at a cusp uh, of, of something that is going to shift probably the direction of nations even for decades to come. Uh, and right now I would say just like when Hitler was making his move in uh, the 1930s, it was in a direction that was very unfavorable. <laughs> it was very dark. And if you were, a, you know, I'm just trying to put myself right back in like 1935 through 19. Uh, 39, just to try and see how I would, if you take Eric Ludi and just stick him back then and make him a pastor of some place, uh, how am I responding to this? What am I seeing? What am I sniffing in the air? And I would say, if you take Eric and stick him right now, I'm probably sniffing something fairly similar. And, and that is, it's an encroachment of darkness, a bold and brazened movement of darkness that is meant to intimidate the rest of us into silence. And that's what was happening back in 1939 when Hitler was making his move. He was, in a sense, challenging someone to do something, but he knew that they were going to be passive. And so he kept taking steps forward. And as long as righteousness will do nothing, darkness will move upon the world and will encroach and will take territory. And that's what we saw. And it wasn't until he invaded Poland that actually the Allies finally responded. And you're going to see what everyone calls the beginnings of World War II, but the beginnings of this encroachment happened long before that. And that's what we've been watching. The question is, is there going to be an answer? Is there going to be a response of righteousness in the midst of this? And as Christians, we recognize that you know, our goal is not to you know, fight wars, uh, in the physical sense, but it is to fight a war. It is to actually engage in a battle. And the way in which we engage in this battle might be different than the way that some would think that the solution needs to come. And yet, I'm not against physical things happening. I'm just very for spiritual things beginning to happen. And that is going to happen when men and women begin to pray. When men and women take it seriously and they are willing to fast. They are willing to aggressively pray. They're, it's more than just like dinnertime prayer where they're willing to set aside seasons of their life and say, I need to go. Just as troops are being sent over and they're going into basic training and they're being fit with weapons and they're learning how to fight and they're actually going to the, the beaches of Normandy, just as that is very real, so must we enter into a discomfort, a discomfort or a difficulty to engage an enemy. The question is, how many of us are actually willing to do that? In other words, it sounds really good on paper, it sounds really good in theory, but very few of us are willing to actually get uncomfortable to see the direction of history shift. And what we need is more than one man or woman praying. We need the body of Christ actually beginning to come together as one, as a fighting unit. And so I think, you know, in light of you know, any, someone who listens to this in the, in the future, we'll be able to look back, you know, say after the election in November of, of 2020, and they'll have a lot clearer idea of what happened, right? Because they're living in the future, whereas we're in the now. We don't know where things are going to turn. We don't know exactly how things are going to unfold. One thing I can say in... Uh, 
in having at least a snapshot understanding of last night's uh, debate, which was the first presidential debate between uh, Donald Trump and Joseph Biden, uh, is that we don't have a lot of Christian character being expressed. We see a lot of animosity, a lot of arrogance uh, that is, and it sort of symbolizes where our nation is at. It's like, hey, where's Christ in this? That wasn't pleasing. That wasn't honoring. You have lies and you have truth, yes. But as I've always said, we can speak what is true, but we must speak it the way Jesus would speak it. And if you have truth, but you don't speak it as Jesus would speak it, you actually risk harming with that very truth. And what we have is a lot of pride and arrogance that is ruling in this country on both sides. Okay, now one side represents a righteous platform and one side a very unrighteous platform. And yet we have this tension uh, that is in our midst because godliness has been lost. And we cannot participate in the banter of politics as anything but as Christians. We live our lives as Christians in every sphere of our life. And when we talk about truth and ideas and even politics, we must do it as Christians. We must model Jesus in every single thing we do. It's a, it's a very weighty thing for my soul to see us as a nation steer back towards godliness. We have lost nobility. We have lost dignity. We have lost honor. We have lost the behavior of heaven in this earth. It seems to have evaporated, where it's totally okay to wish death upon your opponent and to criticize them and publicly shame them. This is, this is not healthy. We are in a darkened age, and it's high time that light begins to shine forth. So for those of you that have been following this series, I'm in uh, the Spiritual Lessons from World War II Part 75, it's a good number, I like it. Uh, it takes a long time to get to 75 episodes. And we are in uh, the late summer, just cresting into the early fall of uh, 1944 uh, in this, uh, this journey. Uh, D-Day, which is one of the key markers uh, in World War II, which is June 6, 1944, was a couple months back. And so we have a great movement of allied forces into France and up into Belgium, and they're headed towards Germany. And not without resistance, there's a huge amount of uh, resistance that they're running into. And uh, on, on Monday, we went through, uh, I called it the submission of Winston, and just the dynamic that Winston Churchill personally is going through. It's personal, but it's also on a very public stage, that he is, in a sense, shrinking in his voice as Roosevelt increases in his because now in, I think it was in July, a specific date in July, the Americans will have more troops in battle than the British will. And it's weird, but you almost feel like a, a, something happening where the voice of Great Britain is shrinking and the voice of America in World War II is enlarging. And probably in a faster and greater way than it should. And that would be my assessment just looking in from the outside all these years later is I see a diminishment of Great Britain even though they were the ones that stood alone in the beginning and were willing to fight Hitler even if no one else entered. And I feel like there's a little honor due in that direction. It was just like a, a personal thing. And like I said, my middle name is Winston and maybe there's something there uh, of why I feel that. But uh, this is going to sort of couple with that particular message because it's sort of the same line of thought. We're in the Mediterranean theater and where you have Field Marshal Alexander that is down there and he was the one with this mighty army uh, that he was in charge of and Eisenhower had his mighty army up in France and Alexander's uh, mighty army is going to be stripped to basically support Eisenhower's mighty army. And so Alexander is going to have to still do the same job, but with like this shrunk down skeletal uh, military system. 
and all of the eyes are going to swing up towards France. Everyone, like in America, we remember what happened in France. We remember the beaches of Normandy. We remember the liberation of Paris. We remember all these things that are, you know, the Battle of the Bulge, all these things that are going to swell uh, in, in importance in our mind and our understanding because that's where the American troops are. And that's what stands out to us. And yet there's this theater down in the Mediterranean that is going to have to do their job even though no one notices it. And if you were to just you know, Google Field Marshal Alexander, World War II, you're going to recognize he doesn't pop up with a lot of panache. You hardly even know that he's there unless you know his name and you know who to search for. Whereas Eisenhower, he's all over the place, right? It's like there is going to be one general that is going to stand out uh, in all of this. And it's all the generals that are fighting up in France. And this one guy gets stuck in the theater that no one wants. And yet it's critical to winning up in France. And if Alexander doesn't do his job down in Italy, down in the Mediterranean, well, then they're not going to be able to do their job up in what's called the Rhineland, which is the eastern side of Germany. <clears throat> so we're going to call this fighting under the stage. August 1944, Operation Humility. Now, it actually wasn't called that, but that's my name for it. There's something about this, this is, that is really hard. And as I, I've studied it, I keep trying to put myself into the position if I am a general in the military armed forces, if I'm on the allied side, there's certain places you want to be and there's certain places you really don't want to be. But the, when you get an, uh, a command from your uh, commanding officer, you just do it. When you get a job, that's what you do. You don't argue because you go where you are most needed. And Alexander is most needed down in the Mediterranean. And he is given all the troops. I mean, he has a mighty host down there. And yet, because of the swelling importance of the Americans and their vision of what needs to happen in France, they're going to basically take all of their troops out of the Mediterranean and stick them into France to support Eisenhower, which is going to leave Alexander with this little puny operation that is still very important. <clears throat> so I'm going to call it Operation Humility, because for whatever reason, God doesn't seem to be against Operation Humilities in our life. He seems to sponsor them at a certain level to, to measure us and to see if we are truly fit to bear the name of Jesus. So this is the map I showed on Monday, which is showing the, uh, the work in the Mediterranean down near the boot there. You can't see the end of the, the toe of the boot, and as a result, it's, you don't re recognize that that's Italy. But then there's France up to the left, the big blue uh, country, and you see all the, the swarming importance up there. But then there's going to be something called Operation Anvil or Dragoon, where they want to hit, and the, the Allies, or basically the Americans, want to hit in the uh, French Riviera, and they want to come up through France and sort of stake claim to that Vichy area and take it over. And so in this next slide, you'll see they're going to move over most of what uh, Alexander is going to have down in Italy over into that operation, which is then going to sweep up and join Eisenhower. And so, I mean, that, it makes no difference. To most of us, we don't care about things like this until you personalize it, until you recognize you're the one that's in charge of Italy, and then it, suddenly you feel a little sting uh, in there. And that's why I wanted to walk through this, because it's very interesting with memoirs to be able to walk through what the real engagement with these challenges were for the British uh, forces there. So we're going to call it the big and the small. And you see President Roosevelt and General Eisenhower, and they, they've suddenly gotten really big uh, in this whole story. They weren't even in the war until December 7th, 1941. And this has always been Great Britain that has been fighting Hitler, and then because of Pearl Harbor, the Americans are going to enter, and it's going to take them a long time to get their military machine together, but now it's together. And once the military machine of America gets together, it's pretty impressive, I have to admit. I, I, I really, there's part of me that bursts a few buttons when I, when I see how America readies itself for war and how it goes to war. When you study World War I, World War I, you have all these tattered soldiers that have been in trenches for so long, and the Americans are going to not get in the war, 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 and then get in the war. 
And when they get over, the, I think I remember hearing something like the average size of the soldier in World War I was 110 pounds. I don't know if that's true, but that is like so dinky compared to an American. We as Americans, I mean, we're not 110 pounds uh, in our manhood. It's like, come on. And when the Americans showed up in Europe, everyone in, in both sides of the, of the aisle are just like, whoa, these guys are huge. Big hulking farm boys come walking in, and they'd never seen anything like it. All these little scrawny British and French are sitting there going, what is this? You know, and I, I, I felt good when I read that. You know, I liked that. Uh, but what you see is sort of like this. You see, look at Eisenhower. Doesn't it look like he's the farm boy going, yep, yep, we're here. And, that's, and it makes the, these British guys feel sort of smallish. And they're becoming smallish, even in the way that the politics of all of this are playing out. And so you have President Roosevelt and then General Eisenhower and then Prime Minister Churchill and Field Marshal Montgomery, the big and the small. So Winston Churchill, from his memoirs, on the morning of August 17th, I set out by motor to meet General Alexander. I was delighted to see him for the first time since his victory and entry into Rome. He drove me all along the old casino front, showing me how the battle had gone and where the main struggles had occurred. Alexander brought his chief officers to dinner and explained to me fully his difficulties and plans. The 15th group of armies had indeed been skinned and starved. In other words, this is referring to Roosevelt basically taking all of his soldiers. The far-reaching projects we had cherished must now be abandoned. It was still our duty to hold the Germans in the largest numbers on our front. If this purpose was to be achieved, an offensive was imperative. But the well-integrated German armies were almost as strong as ours, composed of so many different contingents and races. It was proposed to attack along the whole front early on August 26th. Our right hand would be upon the Adriatic and our immediate objective, Rimini. The westward under Alexander's command lay the 5th American army. This had been stripped and mutilated for the sake of Anvil, but would nevertheless advance with vigor. So you see his frustration in there. It's like we have, I mean, even his terminology, stripped and mutilated. Uh, you know, okay, that's a pretty uh, vivid description, uh, Churchill. In other words, basically, we have been carved into. And yet, to do what we need to do, you see, their whole job is to distract and to have German divisions need to stay there. And so what they're supposed to do is keep the Germans that are already there, there. Because if they, they're not there, they're going to fight in Germany or up against the Soviets in Russia. And so for the success of these other operations, they need to actually have an offensive. They need to hit the enemy. But now they're very likely going to lose. They're in, first of all, the, the Germans and, and all of their foes, all of their, I'm sorry, not their foes, their friends, are entrenched, which means they are behind battlements. They're, they're in good positions. And the Americans, which don't, I'm sorry, the British, which now do not outnumber them, need to hit them for the sole reason of keeping them there, even though they're very likely going to lose. And when you lose battles, you don't become famous. And so as a result, this is a fairly difficult task uh, that is being undergone here for Alexander. So this is Winston Churchill. I realized how painful the tearing to pieces of this fine army had been to those who controlled it. So when Churchill gets down there, he's actually seen, in, in talking with these men, he's recognizing this is like a tearing to pieces. And these, these men are really struggling with it. They're struggling with anger. They're struggling with frustration. And they're just sort of like forgotten. And yet they have a job to do. And so they're going to lift their chin up high. They're good British soldiers. They're going to do what they're supposed to do. But this is hard. This is a very difficult situation. So Winston Churchill continues, when one writes things on paper to decide or explain large questions affecting action, there is mental stress. But all this bites much deeper when you see and feel it on the spot. Here was this splendid army, equivalent to 25 divisions, of which a quarter were American, reduced till it was just not strong enough to produce decisive results against the immense power of the defensive. Alexander's offensive failed. Now, I'm skipping a lot. I'm skipping the whole story of what's going to happen in the battle, because that's not my focus. My focus isn't how they're going to fight, what they're going to try and do. The long and short of it is it's going to fail. 
they can't win this thing. They're against an entrenched defensive foe. They have been stripped of all their strength and power. And they're fighting a battle that almost like can't be won in the normal sense. However, the victory is that they're just keeping the Germans there. But there's nothing heroic looking about it to the outside world. The outside world doesn't really even know about this story, even to this day. In other words, you're some of the few people on earth that probably know that Alexander fought in Italy and didn't win. It's like, who cares? If you're not going to win a decisive victory, who cares? I mean, why should we repeat it in history? Alexander's offensive failed by the barest of margins to achieve the success it deserved and we so badly needed. Italy was not to be wholly free for another eight months. The right-handed drive to Vienna was denied to us, and, and, and except in Greece, our military power to influence the liberation of southeastern Europe was gone. Winston Churchill continues, it was the greatest difficulty that the troops toiled, it was with the greatest difficulty that the troops toiled forward. Although hopes of decisive victory had faded, Listen to this. It remained the first duty of the armies in Italy to keep up the pressure and deter the enemy from sending help to the hard-pressed German armies on the Rhine. They have to just keep going. They have to keep going because their whole job, their prime objective is to keep the Germans occupied. So you're going to notice that all the importance is now up in northern France. We've got a whole bunch of noise and hullabaloo taking place up there. And then you got this little diddly squat operation down there on the boot of Italy that uh, none of us really are that interested in. I remember I said fighting under the stage. At, at Ellerslie, we always have a message called the man under the stage. And it's showing the, the role. You have the preacher who stands on top of the stage that usually gets all the plaudits and all the accolades for the impact of a message. And yet in Christian history, there's something known as the one under the stage, the one praying while the preacher is preaching. And, you know, the famous story of William Booth as he stands up there on the stage and he cannot seem to break through the hard crust of his audience. He senses it. And so he yells out, pray! And you could say, who's he talking to? Pray! Who, who's he talking to? These people are just listening to a message. What are they supposed to be praying? He's talking to the, well, the man under the stage, uh, who I think he even really was under the stage, wasn't he, in that story? He's, he's telling him to pray. Keep praying. Don't stop. The only way we're going to break through is if you keep praying. And everyone's looking around going, I don't see anyone. Yeah, that's because he's under the stage. He's in the boot of Italy. You see, there's something important that is taking place in Italy. But the world may never see it. And yet these men are going to lay down their lives so that we can break through in the Rhineland and get into Germany to take down Hitler. And whoever gets the assignment in the boot of Italy has to rise up and understand the dignity of that position, the significance of working unseen on behalf of something that is visible, the dignity and the importance in the kingdom of heaven of being the one overlooked even though you're doing a significant job and playing a significant role. Luke 14, 7 through 11. When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, and he who invited you and him, and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the pattern of the kingdom, and Jesus is unveiling it. Jesus himself is going to come to this earth, He's going to spy out the table, and he's going to take the lowest seat. And then the father is going to say, friend, come up higher. This is exactly the pattern that we're going to see in Philippians. This is the pattern of Jesus. And he is training us how to function in his kingdom. We have a propensity, a yearning in our firstborn state to be appreciated, to be approved, 
to be respected, to be honored, to be applauded, to be liked, to have a high popularity rating. To get the high popularity rating, we see what is needed. It's laid out before us. You need to look good here. You need to talk right here. You need to have the right job. You need to wear the right clothes. You need to eat the right food. I mean, there's everything. There's all the cool symbols in a culture. And when you do the right thing, I mean, I, 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 was, I was noticing, I was talking with someone about getting a, uh, uh, I can't think of what they're called, a chest, that's a cooler chest. You guys know what I'm talking about? I can't think of what they're called. Uh, and there's one really cool brand right now. I'm sure you guys know what it is. It's called Yeti. And if you have a Yeti and you're camping, all the other campers look around and go, well, they're cool. And I, I didn't know that, right? You know, so I'm discovering this. And so it's like, well, how much does a Yeti cost? Oh, it costs like three or four times what these other ones got. So this other family is like, yeah, you know, this one has the same reviews as the Yeti and it costs like $100. The Yeti costs like 400 So it's like, but boy, what we will pay to have the look. Okay, so when you're in your firstborn state and you're reasoning in your firstborn state, you recognize that you want to be in France, you want to be in the important roles that will cause you to be impressive in the history books. It's a natural propensity. If you were looking at this story of which assignment you would want, there isn't a one of us that is going to choose the boot in Italy. But what if God were to look at the same map that we're looking at and he were to say, watch closely guys, and he circles the boot of Italy and he says, this is possibly the most important place to be right now. And he says, would you take this important role? I'm going to choose the ones that I think are most prepared. Well, what, why would God give that to someone? Because he knows that they are fit. Well, what does it take to be fit for the boot of Italy? Humility. You see, it's a hard job. The boot of Italy in this story is not the one that we would naturally gravitate towards. However, I want you to recognize the Godhead the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gravitate towards the boot of Italy. It doesn't mean they diminish the value of the war in France. They know how significant this is that we break through and get to Germany. However, they're going to look at themselves and say, well, who gets this job? Jesus is going to come and he's going to take the lowest place. And he's going to take the job that no one would want. He's going to look at the Godhead and say, let me go. And then when it comes to actually doing the work of the church, the Holy Spirit's gonna raise his hand and say, let me go. And he's gonna take the lowest position and he's gonna wash the bride's feet for a living to lead us to Jesus. That's the one you need to see. Not me, that's the one you need to see. You see, over and over you're gonna see this pattern in the kingdom of heaven of taking the low seat. And so our propensity is to take the high seat. We want to look good to the world around us. We want to be appreciated by the world around us. However, imagine that you had a choice between standing on the stage or going under the stage. And God says, I need someone under the stage so that the man on the stage, when he preaches, the word of God will come forth with fire, with power, and will crack open the shell of their soul and cause them to see and to hear. If it's just a preacher, it's not going to work. But if there's a man under the stage, this will change the nations. But I need a man under the stage. We all look around like, well, I'm sure someone in here will volunteer for that. Which of us is willing to say, send me to the boot of Italy. Send me under the stage. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Listen to this. And before honor is humility. So what you're going to see is this pattern. The same thing that you're going to see in that story of the table, the banquet table and taking the low place. And then when you take the low place, the master of that table calls you up. And so what you're going to see is before honor comes that humility. Are you willing to take that low place and not be called up? Because some of us, we have the dealings. It's sort of like, well, if I take the low place, like if I take Italy, could you do something spectacular in Italy so that the history books will all notate me? You see, we, we, we wanted a bargain. It's like, okay, I'm willing to take a low place if I will look really good in this earth. 
You see, sometimes you need to recognize that before honor comes humility, and that honor may be in heaven. It may not be in this earthen realm. And as a result, we need to be willing to choose a low seat at the table and never be called up in front of a whole bunch of people and recognized for being so humble. <laughs> Proverbs 25, 6 through 7. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Isn't that interesting? That's the exact same story that Jesus is going to share in Luke. I mean, that's like precisely the same. Yeah, because the Bible is all in agreement. It's the word of God made flesh in Jesus. This is his life. This is how he is going to live. Luke 14, 11. So this is, we read this earlier, but I just want to repeat it. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. One of the key things about growth in ministry is attention, because we live in a culture of self-promotion. You need to get yourself in front of people. I mean, we grow up in this, and it is negligence if you don't. I don't know if any of you are in that season of life where you have a skill or a talent, and there's a pressure to actually sell yourself to your audience, to make yourself known, to show them, to prove to them that you have what they need. Okay, now that, that's a hard thing to know how to navigate through as a Christian. It's like going into politics, and there's mudslinging everywhere. And it's like, I, I cannot find it in Scripture where you are uh, supposed to sling mud too. When, when you have mud slung at you, sling it back. I don't know that I found that Scripture yet. And as a result, we have this interesting thing where we enter into a world and we know the rules of how you succeed. And yet Jesus is going to come in and break all the rules. He's going to say, I'm going to succeed <laughs> a different way. Uh, you sure don't look like you're succeeding, Jesus. You were stripped naked, falsely accused. You're not opening your mouth to defend yourself. I mean, your popularity rating is going into the toilet right now. You're going to be scourged. Your beard is going to be ripped out. You're going to be spat upon. They're going to stick a crown of thorns upon your head. You're going to hang naked on a cross and die. Sorry, but that isn't the pattern that I'm after. You see, I'm really wanting to finish with sort of a, an applause. Not that. He's not done. You see, before honor comes humility. If we want to change the world, we need to remember the pattern of Jesus, which means we're going to have to die to something. There is something that is latent within all of us, and that is, Lord Jesus, I'm willing to do whatever you ask as long as you don't ask me to do this, this, or this. As long as you don't send me to the boot of Italy. As long as you don't put me under the stage. As long as you fill in the blank. Whatever that is, that caveat that we add into our soul, unwitting, we're not doing it purposely, we're not doing it out loud in our soul, we just have it there. And it undergirds our movements and our thoughts. It's like, Jesus, I will serve you radically up to this point. I've had odd this points in my life, okay? I've had different statements to God, like God... I'm willing to say things boldly for you. Just don't ask me to talk about this. Now, there are certain topics that you really just, all coolness goes out the door the moment you start addressing them. It's like, God, don't. No, please, please don't. You know, for me, it's a different approach. God, you know what needs to be done in this world. You see, I've had to change my approach to this. God, I trust you. You know what I'm built to share. You entrust the message to me even if it sounds buck-toothed to the world? <sighs> My answer is yes. And it doesn't mean I don't have to freshly regain that thought process because I will slide back into first mentalities fairly easily and be like, well, God, that's not going to come across. Oh, yeah, that's right. But you know best. God, if you want me to hang naked on a tree, wow, yes is my answer. God needs his troops in the boot of Italy. The question is, are we the sort 
that he can call on to go there. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the best way to approach this on a map is to circle it in front of God right now and to say, God, you see Italy? He goes, I do, I do. You can send me there. Humbles himself. Doesn't wait for God to humble him. Humbles himself. God, I'm willing to go there. God, I'm willing to be a a vessel of prayer in this generation instead of a vessel of communication to the masses. Circle it. God, I even ask for that position. Could I have the honor of being a janitor in the kingdom of heaven? Could I? Whatever is the low spot, remember water will always find it. That's what humility is defined as in that Old Testament. It's that water that goes into the lowest part of the riverbed. That's the humble spot of the river. And living water, Holy Spirit, the work of grace in our life always goes to that. Where's the Holy Spirit going to take us if he gets a hold of our life? He's going to say, would you go there for me? It would be my honor. It would be my privilege, Lord Jesus. So the man under the stage. Now, I'm not going to teach on the man under the stage. We have a whole message in Ellerslie uh, that goes through this idea in Christian history and the, the various preachers that have brought revival to nations and how there have been men that would go into a town ahead of time and literally be broken by God in prayer. For weeks ahead of time, they would pray. No one would ever know their name, but mighty revival would break out when the, when the revivalist preacher would come. But it wasn't the revivalist preacher. It was the men under the stage or the women under the stage that actually brought about the big impact. It doesn't mean that the preacher doesn't matter. God does care about using a man or a woman who is willing to preach his word. However, we oftentimes don't see this other working that is taking place that is of great significance. So the man under the stage, the one who does the necessary unseen work so that God can move in a very visible way. The man in the water. So this last week we talked about the Holy Spirit and I talked about a story back in 1982, I think it was, when a plane went down in the Potomac in Washington, D.C. And it was in the middle of January and icy waters and this plane goes down. A few of the the people are able to escape the plane and this uh, helicopter comes out, a pilot and a paramedic who is reaching his arms out the out the uh, helicopter trying to drag people in, but the first person they came to wouldn't be rescued, but instead went down into the water and pushed up someone else. And the next time they came back, he refused to be rescued. Instead, he went down into the water and pushed out someone else into the hands of the paramedic. And I would just say to all of us, you know, there's certain roles that we could play in that story, and not many of us are going to gravitate towards being the one in the water that's willing to push people into the helicopter, especially like third time they come back, he had died and uh, had sunk to the bottom. You see, he expended himself to aid others. And what's interesting is we all innately know the heroism of such a movement. However, for a long time, no one even knew his name. And so he was just called the man in the water. He was an unknown. And there's something about us that doesn't want to do our heroic deeds unknown. We want our heroic deeds to be known. If I'm going to go to war, I want to be in a theater that's going to be remembered. I don't want to just die an ignominious death in Italy in August of 1944. Come on, I want my life to count. It does count. If you are where God has assigned you to be, even if no one writes a book about your expenditure, God himself has a book. You are not doing this for the applause of men. You are doing this for your king. Prove it. The one submerged in the icy water, pushing the others into the chopper. So now we have a new term, the man in Italy, or I should have called him the man in the boot. That would have fit my message even better since that's what I've been calling him. The guy given the thankless task of keeping the enemy distracted from the main theater of war. (laughs) What a terrible job to get. Are we sure about that? Are we sure that this isn't a very, very significant one? Remember God 
Remember I'm circling it on the map? Saying right there, this is important. You see, it is important. Everything about this matters, even though the history books and all of our discussions on World War II rarely go in the direction of going to the boot of Italy in August of 1944 going, oh, that was so amazing. Well, there was nothing sparkling about it, but it was amazing. These men still laid down their lives so that these men could win the battle. Introducing the Holy Spirit, that's his role. His entire role is to go into the water and to push us into the hands of the paramedic and the chopper. The paramedic, Jesus Christ, is reaching out. He says, humble yourself, take my hands, let me pull you into salvation. But who's the one that is willing to go into the icy cold waters and do all the hard work to get us there? And yet, for the most part, most, if not, well, we're talking 99.999999999999% of what the Holy Spirit does is never acknowledged. You have no idea all the work that he's doing. And guess what? He is bringing about salvation. He is the one acquainting you with Jesus. So when you are singing a song to Jesus and you see it, you understand his beauty. Who convinced you of his beauty? The Holy Spirit, but very rarely do we ever notate that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not called the gospel of the Holy Spirit. You see, what we have is we have the one who saves Jesus. He's the one. We need to get into his arms. And yet the Holy Spirit is willing to go to the boot of Italy and push. He is willing to take a low place because he's modeling something, and that is our role. He's willing to go to the boot of Italy, and he's God. Are we willing? The kingdom pattern. Aim high by going low. God, I, I consider Italy the greatest place to be right now. He goes, I like your taste. So I would like to aim high by going there because I know before honor comes humility. I'm gonna take the lowest place at the table. That is the best spot. He goes, I like your taste. You see, when we deliberately choose that and we delight in that low spot, instead of eyeing the high spot, going the way I'm gonna to get to that high spot is to go to the low spot. Instead we say, God, I actually admire the low spot. You choose where you want me at this table, but I am perfectly satisfied being in that low seat. When you can arrive at that place without your eye on the high seat going, well, God, the whole reason I took this seat is so you could get the hint that I'm really supposed to be there. Instead, God, I'm willing to take this low seat even if you leave me here. And I will consider it the greatest honor to sit in this low seat as long as you have me here. Philippians 2, 5 through 10 Jesus taking the low seat at the table. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. There's a, a debate that's uh, going on uh, about what language will be spoken in heaven. I mean, it's funny what people get caught up in. And so those that are sort of of the Hebrew roots variety today are convinced it's going to be Hebrew. Because Hebrew is a very noble, high language. It's God's language, the way they would call it, or a heavenly language, right? That's, that's how they might want to say it. And, uh, and yet, some might say Aramaic because it's maybe, a, you know, it was the common language maybe at the time when Jesus was around. I don't think there's much of an argument for that one, right? Uh, Koine Greek, though, the Holy Spirit is going to carry along the writers of the New Testament to write in Koine Greek. So, I mean, it could be Koine Greek. Of course, if you're a good Jew, you roll over in your grave when you hear that. It's like, you've got to be kidding. A dog's language in heaven? No way. English is another one, because this is the, uh, the bridge language of our modern day. And of course, Jesus is going to come any day now, right? So when we get there, it might as well be the language we already are all speaking. So I'm going to answer the question. I know what language they speak in heaven. Isn't this cool? I'm going to give you an answer. I mean, this is like I'm exposing a lot. This is pretty cool. 
In the kingdom of heaven, the language of heaven is humility. It's what we will all speak. So if you want to prepare to communicate well in the kingdom of heaven, you might want to practice that language. This is the language of Jesus when he came to this earth. This is the language of the Holy Spirit. And what are they both pointing to? The Father. They're the ones revealing this Father. So what language do you think he speaks? When you see me, you've seen the Father. Jesus could say, when you hear me talk, you've heard the Father talk. When you watch my humility, you're watching the humility of my Father. And so what we have is a language. I know we don't usually think of humility as a language, but it is. In all we do, we are communicating something. That's why I say in that debate last night, I wasn't hearing the language of humility. It doesn't mean I didn't hear truth and lies. <laughs> it's just that I didn't hear the language of heaven. Heaven is very different than what we see happening in the politics of our day. And yet, I desire us to be willing to model something for our world so that they can once again be introduced into the way that heaven works. And to do that, we have to circle Italy on the map and say, God, I'm willing to go there. In fact, could you send me there? I, I would consider it a privilege to go under the stage, Lord, to go into the water, to go into the boot. Advancing in the kingdom, being called up by the host. In other words, if you want to advance in the kingdom, you don't call yourself up. This is a very interesting dynamic that we face, especially as North American Christians. We are told to self-promote. Think about what that means. To call yourself higher. To promote. Where does promotion come from? It's supposed to come from something outside of you. But we have this whole notion of self-promotion. In other words, raise yourself up before your peers. Uh, guys, I can't tell you how opposite the nature of Christ that is. So though it is very normal in our culture, there's a lot of things that are normal in our culture that are very opposite of Jesus. Just because it's normal does not mean it's right. Hebrews 5, 4 through 5 and then 8 through 9. So it's speaking about the high priesthood. And no man takes this honor of becoming high priest to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Listen to this line, guys. This is profound. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. He did not promote himself. He's God, and he did not promote himself. But it, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He aimed high by going low. He took the low spot, and as a result, we had our feet washed. We have been set free thanks to his military movement of humility and loneliness. Jesus destroyed the powers of earth and hell by going low, by taking the low seat at the table, by being a lamb unto sacrifice. God has entrusted us with tools that can greatly impact the world in which we live, but they are tools that don't make sense to someone who is living in a first condition with a first thought process that is seeking to promote themselves and to be noticed, we have to be willing to give up our reputation and become of no reputation. Psalm 22 says, he was a worm and no man. By the way, that's a pretty low description. A dog was about as low of a position as you could get in the culture, so if you ever hear the term a dog in scripture, that's really low. And I would say a worm might come under a dog. I'm a worm and no man. Are we willing to say, God, send me to the place where I would even be deemed a worm? It's hard. I recognize that. But we got one shot at this thing, guys, to do it right. 
And I'm telling you, this is how heaven thinks. This is how Jesus lived. This is how the Holy Spirit is living in us right now. And if we want to heed the Holy Spirit, he is going to take us underneath the stage. He is going to take us into the water to push others. He is going to take us into the boot. It does not mean that he can't take us from the boot and stick us into the battle of the bulge. That's his choice. However, our choice is to humble ourselves and to say, God, I choose Italy. I choose beneath the stage. I choose in the water. I believe that is where you would go, and I want to go where you would go. Father, we recognize our natural inclination towards self-exaltation. We recognize that devilish pattern inside of us. And Lord, we confess it, and we acknowledge our need for you, but we also acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the spirit is greater than that flesh. That this second life, this new creation in Christ is actually stronger than our first life. And that as we yield to it, the working of the Holy Spirit, the working of Christ in us is actually greater than our first proclivities. So Lord, we expect for you to do a mighty work because we agree with it. And we say, God, take us where you want us to go. We want to humble ourselves today. We don't want to wait for you to tell us to go to a lower seat. We choose the lower seat. Lord, train us in this life. Train us in this thinking. Train us in this behavior. We love you and submit to you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.